Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 61, and this week we're going to talk about what it's like leading technical teams with our special guest, Jules Kramer. Ward, my special co-host, how are you doing this day? Feeling special as always. You are special Ward. (laughs) (laughs) This can not go well wherever you're going with this, John. So I suggest we just say hello to Jules because, um, for one, this is my first opportunity to congratulate you, Jules, on taking the reins at Angular. And um, and also, I have uh, uh, the privilege of having been on a team that you led. Ah, hello, y'all, and thanks. Yeah, for those of you out there who are not familiar with Jules, uh, let me read a little bit about her bio here. Jules has spent over 20 years in the tech industry focused on software development and business strategy. She joined Google in 2010, leading a global team of strategists and analysts focused on strategic marketing intelligence. 2014, Jules moved to the Angular team. That's when most of us uh, started getting acquainted with Jules, managing developer relations and product strategy. And most recently, Jules took on leading the developer relations team for cloud startups, higher education, and the G Suite developer platform. Prior to Google, she worked at Microsoft on developer tools, strategy, and software architecture, and owned a consulting firm providing software solutions to a wide range of business. And Jules, you've recently took on this new role, as Ward alluded to. What is your current role? Yeah, so I am uh, brand new back onto the Angular team. However, my role is slightly different than it was before. So where when I was on the Angular team before I was managing developer relations, I am now the engineering manager for all of Google's web framework investments. Angular is one of those investments. So I do manage the Angular team, uh, but I also manage other teams within Google that are working on similar uh, problems for web developers that are mostly Google engineers. Um, and I'll be looking to unify our efforts as we go forward in 2020. Holy smokes, that's a big portfolio, Jules. <laughs> you know, it seems like a lot of people who've been around for a while, uh, like I have, um, like Ward has, and Jules, you've been doing this for 20 years as well. Uh, people tend to go between Google and Microsoft and Amazon and some of the big tech firms. Um, is it just me who feels like that, or do you see a lot of folks going back and forth, Jules? Well, I might have an interesting perspective on that since, uh, you know, it's my Googleversary was actually on Saturday. So I've been at Google for nine years as of last Saturday. And prior to Google being at Microsoft, uh, that was back before there was really, how should I say it, a competition between the two companies. Um, having been at Microsoft at the time, we only looked at Google as a search engine and maybe doing some educational things. And so I was really one of the first people I know of to sort of leave Microsoft and move over to Google. In fact, I remember when I first came to Google, I sort of started the ex microsoft email list for those of us having to get used to using a Mac back in the day. <laughs> that was like a big deal. Um, so Back then, when I first came, it was sort of an anomaly. I remember I went to a conference the month after I joined Google, and there was all these escalations that a Googler was in attendance. Um, And I think that the world has really changed since then. I see a lot more people from Microsoft and Amazon and Google going back and forth. So I definitely see the truth in what you're saying. Um, But my experience has been... I came during a time which that wasn't true, so I had a, a little bit of a different onboarding to Google than I think most people coming out of Microsoft today, where the political, not the political, but the culture of Microsoft has definitively changed in 10 years under Satya for the better, and you can see that in the people that are now coming over. Yeah, you know, I think you're right, because my experience, I was at Microsoft back in 2009, 2011 for a two-year stint, and back then, I don't really ever remember thinking about Google in a lot of our conversations, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of it was just search engine based. And unless it were, you're dealing with like IE and Chrome, it really didn't come up. Uh, not that I can recall, at least. But you're right. Things have changed quite a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, this was back before a cloud existed, right? There was no cloud. There was no Azure. There wasn't any of those things. So I think that, you know, we saw the world change as all of the leading companies started developing those services for external customers. Yeah, back then, Amazon was selling books. <laughs> or that's what their big thing that they were known for was. Uh, and cloud was really just a small, tiny thing, even at that point. Wow. I wonder what we'll be doing in 10 years from now, you know? Yeah, who knows? I don't, I'm of that age where uh, I don't even know if I'll be in technology in 10 years. Yeah, I don't say that. I think uh, Ward's going to outlast all of us, to be honest. <laughs> Ward might outlast all of us. Yeah, I'm putting my teeth back in. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and, he's, <laughs> and he certainly has the wardrobe to pull it through the next uh, decade. There you go. You know, that's I wear only timeless classics. <laughs> yes, everyone gets to see them. If you haven't been to a conference with Ward Bell then you don't know what we're talking about. If you've been to one with Ward, you're absolutely aware. Uh, he's always the best-dressed person at every conference I've ever been to. There were some heavy air quotes around best. <laughs> so, Jules, one thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about today is we often get into the stories of our developers and kind of the things that they go through. You have a very unique perspective because you've led some very large teams who have a lot of customers. And speaking specifically of the Angular team, and then now you've got an even bigger portfolio, Angular itself reaches, I'm not even sure what the number is, but million, more than a million developers in the world that touch hundreds of millions of users. That's got to be daunting at times, knowing that the things that you're, you're managing and dealing with can, uh, can go really well or could break everything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in particular with this new role, because I sort of have to look at the number of people that my work reaches and impacts in a twofold way, right? So not only are there thousands of Google engineers relying on the infrastructure that we build, whether that's Angular or our internal frameworks, because Angular is very well uh, received and used internally at at Google as well. Um, But then also the users that those apps reach, right? So when we talk about Google Search, for example, um, there's billions of users and Angular is touching millions of developers who in turn then touch millions of users. So yeah, the pressure is on and, and, and pretty big. And I hope that the culture that Angular has always had of doing the right thing for the user, uh, you know, filters it way through our 2020 planning. Um, it is a big job. It is a little daunting, um, in particular, thinking about how we unify our efforts across multiple teams so that we're not, you know, working on the same challenges without collaboration. And, and that's really my goal for the coming year. So what, what are the big, I mean, if you could talk about some of the challenges that you've had, either in your previous role or in your current role leading some of these teams, like what kind of things do you have to think about that we're probably not even considering? Um, I, you know, I would say right now, having, you know, been away from Angular and web front ends for the last couple of years and working on some other things within Google, um, and then coming back into it, my primary focus right now is on the people. And when I say people, I mean both the team that builds our products and the people that use those products. Um, As the engineering manager, I view my role to make the people working on the product successful and ensure that we're driving the product to a place that the people who are using it also have success. So I'm currently mostly focused on uh, the teams that I have, where they are, where they're working on. Is it aligned to their career goals? Do they need to build some soft skills or do they need more technical influence? So what are the challenges with the people coming to work every day and wanting to be here, because when you have the passion and want to be here, you're going to build the biggest product or the best product, rather. And so I focus a lot right now on the organizational challenges. How do I take two very large teams and open up the doors for collaboration on tough technical challenges? So for example, one of my internal framework teams works on service workers. Uh, Obviously, Angular also works on service workers. Instead of working on silos, how do I create the opportunity for those two teams, those people to come together and foster collaboration and come to conclusions together that we can then work on? Did those teams even know each other before uh, or did they sort of just heard about each other? What kinds of things are you doing to bring them together to coordinate? Yeah, so no. Those, I mean, yes, those two teams did know each other before, obviously. Google's still small enough that we're aware of other people working on the same challenges. But organizationally, the two teams were in different orgs. We are now in the same org managed by one manager. That's myself. Um, and so, you know, in any big corporation, organizational priorities take place over maybe product or team priorities. And so the prioritization of work efforts or the biggest challenges that we had to face in how do we serve web developers around the world, we're getting worked on in two spaces. So right now what we're doing is we're taking a step back. 
We're looking at both of our sort of, I call them both offerings, although there's multiple offerings in each, in each sort of framework, if you will. Um, we're taking a step back, looking at where each of them is, what are their positives, what are the things users, developers, love about each one of them individually? Uh, who's done the most thinking, uh, forward-facing about where the web is going, where web developers will need to go? And then how can we sort of have three parallel tracks where we're investing what we need to invest in Angular and internally, as well as sort of working on the thinking of building these things together for both internal and external usage without duplication. And, and there's some challenges there, right? Because internally at Google, we work slightly different than other enterprise companies might. For example, not a lot of enterprise companies currently have mono repos and the tool chain that goes along with mono repos. So how do we model really great best practices from developer workflow, as well as embracing the differences between how Google itself works and how our largest enterprise customers work? Can you explain a little what a mono repo is to folks who may not have know or have heard of it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the simplest explanation, right, is at Google, there is only one version of any API. So when we release Angular internally, everybody is using the latest and greatest. There is no different versions, except with the exception of Angular 1, Angular JS, for example. Um, but uh, there, there is a uh, monorepo with all of our code. Everybody can see that code. Everybody can change the code. Everybody has access and, you know, the ability to submit PRs or CLs against internal code bases. And we all use the same version of the truth. So um, it's, it's a challenge in, in that the external world does not work the same way. And it's also incredibly, incredibly powerful. I believe that there's actually an article somewhere on the internet, if you probably Google, Google monorepo, that goes... Uh, pretty far in depth about how we do these things at Google. Yeah, and I'm including a couple of these links. Uh, it's exactly what I'm doing right now for the show notes. <laughs> so, so Jules, well, I would imagine that personal dynamics get to be interesting in this. Like, for example, suppose I've been doing Surface Worker for a long time with my team, and John's been doing Surface Worker a long time for his team, and we've, we feel pretty good about our independent efforts. And then uh, suddenly Jules comes along and smashes our heads together and says, hey, guys, figure it out. Like, <laughs> how do you make that work? Hey, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hey, Ward, you know, I was building an application the other day, and I pulled in this really cool UI component, but it brought along a lot of dependencies with it. How do you deal with that? I don't like that, John. Um, it reminds me uh, that the AG Grid, which is a uh, an advanced uh, data editable data table that we use in a lot of our enterprise apps because it it addresses the complex scenarios we encounter. Um, AG Grid doesn't have any dependencies at all. Zero dependencies. Well. Tell me, why, why is that good? Like, what is the value of having zero dependencies? Well, it's, it's wonderful not having to wonder if while I'm pulling that in, I'm also pulling jQuery in or Lodash or who knows what, uh, in part because that's extra stuff coming over the wire. It's extra files that I don't know what they're all about. Uh, it means when my client security team has to evaluate this, they're evaluating AG Grid and not everything else that might be slipping in under the covers or something that we have to worry about there. You know, it's great to see this day and age, you can have a zero dependency library that does something like complex data grid functionality. So all of you out there, do check out AG Grid at their website at ag-grid.com. And we're back. Jules, you never run into problems like that, do you? Yeah, every day. Uh, I would say that. All right, we need names. Tell us names. How, <laughs> how do I bring people who have disparate views to the same challenge together in a room and come out with the best possible effort as opposed to duplicate efforts or not having everybody on the same train, if you will? So there's, there's various product management or design techniques at Google that I've learned over the years. Uh, one of my favorites is simply the stick, sticky note exercise. Put everybody in a room, let everybody sticky note out the challenges, sort of uh, conglomerate the same challenges into one big group and then break it down and figure it out from there. One of the things I will be working towards as we think about moving forward on Angular um, is how do I bring our experts in the community, our GDE uh, uh, representatives, the big representatives from our largest customers who have a stake in the game, right? How do I get them into those design sessions? How do we ensure that their views, that people like yourselves can be there to help us think through these problems for the future? Because what is clear to me is that, you know, this, this, the day and state of Angular today 
is not going to be the Angular of tomorrow because we have to keep up with where the web is going and ensure that we continue to innovate about that. So yeah, I, it's a tough problem. I try to use design techniques to get around the problem. Uh, I think face-to-face, -face, people in a room, brainstorming these topics is the right way to get started. And then you know, a concrete plan and, and PRDs and product planning and, and sort of the traditional engineering process post that so that everybody can stay on the same page. And you know, if things come up as they inevitably do, we get back in the room and collaborate again and, and ensure we're going the right direction. How do you balance some of the priorities? I'm curious. I'm always curious at large uh, companies like this, when you've got something that just affects so many people, obviously you've got new features you want to get out. You want to get the quality super high, but you've also got customers who are external. And as I understand it, Google uses a lot of Angular as well. So how do you balance those priorities? Very carefully. I won't say that I haven't dropped plates because it happens, right? It's pretty hard to, you know, what's the old saying? You can't please everyone all the time. Um, and that's that's absolutely true. I can't please everyone all the time. I have so many hands and bodies that can help us build this thing. Um, so when it comes to prioritization, I think I have to take some some certain signals, and those signals change over time, right? So as an example, if some big, huge, billion-user product internally at Google that is using Angular has an issue, we'll probably you know prioritize that pretty heavily just because the number of users that it's touching in the world is so vast. Um, if there's big enterprise companies that come to us with challenges, we definitively try to put our DevRel team working with those customers to work through the challenges and change the framework where we need to to make them successful. I would say that you know prioritization is probably one of the hardest things in product management because there is an infinite amount of things that we could work on. And when you talk about features, when you talk about challenges internally at Google, we also have technical debt, right? You don't build a product without accumulating technical debt. Every product does. And so how do we balance getting out of our own technical debt while still innovating in the future is a problem that I'm actively working on today. I'd love all of your feedback. Um, but in terms of like gathering the requirements that we use to prioritize, we do a lot of DevRel work, both internally and externally. Um, and through that DevRel work, we then apply like a market lens. Where's the market going? Who are the competitors in the market? One thing I love about Angular that I've always loved um, is that we're not super competitive, right? We, we, you can sit with us. We don't care who you are. And as a result, we don't necessarily look at the market as like, oh my gosh, we have to compete with these products. We really look at the market more in a global general sense of the web. Who's using the web? How are they using it? And how do we make that better for developers everywhere? So, so this is a great uh, point to, to get at something that's always, uh, well, people are always asking me, why is Google making this open source when... Really, they've got 600-plus applications using Angular and all that stuff, and they have these internal needs. Why should they care about the outside world? Why should they care about open source? Um, and how does open source serve Google's needs at all? So Angular sits right there, right? You use it heavily internally, and yet you've been hugely responsive to the people out here who have completely different interests than Google itself. What, um, what makes that a good thing for Google? I think that answer is going to be different depending on which open source product you really look at. I also think that that is a tough answer for any company. I, I suspect that Microsoft and you know Facebook and all other companies grapple with this sort of like why open source question as well. Um, from my perspective, and I certainly can't speak for Google in this regard, um, I have two answers to this question. The one, the one is personal, right? Uh, part of the reason why I was excited to come back to Angular and excited to take on web frameworks for Google is that I think my first stint on the Angular team really changed how I view my place in the world. I had never worked in open source before that, and being a part of something that generates such a loving and special community, being a part of something that gives back to the world without a dollar amount uh, you know, on top of it, um, really changed who I am. And I knew from the first moment I started working on Angular that I'd always have to work in some capacity around open source or giving back to the world in some way. So that's my personal view. On a, on a, and I think many people on the Angular team feel that same way. I think what drives a lot of the Angular team is to get up in the morning and know they're changing the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of developers around the world. For Google specifically, you know, there's multiple tiers to why open source matters. So first, we need to be a part of what's happening outside of Google's walls. It's not like we're not egotistical enough at Google to believe we have all the answers, right? The answers need to come from the community that has built up around these things, and the answers need to come from collaboration with that community. 
Um, second, I also believe it actually makes some of our work at Google easier. So for example, if one of the large product consumer-based product teams is looking for new SWEs or software engineers, um, it's far easier to go out into the world and hire an Angular software engineer than it is to hire somebody and then onboard them to specific or proprietary tooling, right? So we get a lot of value out of having something that we've built be both used internally as well as externally um, as a corporation ourselves. Um, but I would say the primary reason why it matters is, is what I alluded to or said earlier. It's that we have to be a part of the web and the web is not just Google. And therefore, being part of open source and being part of those communities help us drive our innovation forward, whether that's for web frameworks or any of the other products that we put out there on the web. Oh, that's that's a great answer, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sound surprised. I'm just saying. Wait, I'm you like something more? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not happening on our podcast. Okay. All right. So let's get that out of the way. It's uh, the softer, gentler side of Ward yeah. Bell. <laughs> Um, no, no, I mean, I think that really puts it well. Uh, and I hadn't actually even thought about the hiring angle, but that's also true because I think, uh, uh, Google has actually hired a lot of people out of the community because they said, you know, that person really has demonstrated something and we should scoop them up. Yep. That's true. I would say, oops. Um, I would say that a significant, or I don't even know how many the count is, but I do know that there's a, you know, a general number of, uh, Googlers, that came from our Angular community specifically. Um, and those Googlers are not always working on Angular. Uh, I actually have a couple of them who work on other parts of web frameworks at Google. So yeah, pretty powerful piece to uh, our open source work, in my opinion. So you talked about pushing together, you know, trying to re remove duplication, like you picked service workers as an example. But I can think off of the top of my head of three application frameworks within Google, you know, Angular, Dart, and Polymer. And they have Not to their mention own Flutter. <laughs> they have their own communities and certainly their own approach to how to build on the web. And uh, is it really the goal to sort of unify around a single one, or or rather to find ways to move them all forward independently so they have their strengths? Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I'm not going to and cannot speak for those teams or their plans. Um, we do have different opportunities on the web for different developers. So for example, Flutter is not a solely web-based framework, right? It, it's, it's meant to cross platforms or be multi-platform. Um, we are in touch with those teams. We align to where those teams are going to ensure that parts that affect us and vice versa are well thought through. Um, but we're not trying to, you know, be the only thing out there. Um, and, and I don't think that that's ever a future that Google would want. You know, I... I hear a lot about why are there so many different frameworks, right? I still hear the whole, hey, it's the JavaScript framework of the week, and there's all these different tools out there. But I, I, I don't know, maybe because I'm so deep into the community that I just don't see it that way anymore. I do feel there was a time when you couldn't turn around without something new coming out. But you really look at Vue, React, and Angular, and they've all been around for a long time at this point in technology, long time. Uh, and I just don't see anything even approaching any of those three major JavaScript frameworks as far as uh, usage or competitiveness at this point. While I like things like Svelte and some other tools, um, I just I just don't see it. I mean, am I missing this? Am I in my own bubble, Jules? Or how, how do you view that? Uh, no, I completely agree with you. I think that there was you know a time when I was on the Angular team before where. I, I, I felt that every day it was some something new on the you know horizon that I had to go figure out what that meant. I yeah. I haven't gotten that sense. You know, obviously I've only been back in this role for a month, uh, so I haven't really gotten that sense lately. But what you know, I am getting a lot of comparison or a lot of, you know, Angular isn't this or Angular isn't that. And the, you know, the, one of the things I think that gets lost in this is that actually what Angular is is what we set out to build, and I I know this because. Five years ago, or however many years ago it was, that I very first joined the Angular team, Angular had never had a product manager or DevRel at that point in time. And so the thing that I did back then, and I think, John, this is probably where you and I first began even speaking to each other a lot, was I went out to all of the big, huge companies, and I interviewed everyone. And I said, what is it you want from us? And you know, the definitive 
top tier thing that I got from those big enterprises was we want an opinionated end-to-end framework. And from that moment on, that is what we set out to build. And, and I think it gets lost sometimes in the community that we didn't ever start off to be the same as what we get compared to. And, and we don't view ourselves as the same as what we get compared to. And, and I, I think that the you know, the Twitter verse, if you will, is not always the most friendly place. And I think some of the details can get lost in how we look about what are the options, what do libraries do for us, what do frameworks do for us, what is a platform kind of deal. Um, I, I love that the Angular team is not competitive enough to care about these types of things, even though somewhere in my product manager heart, I think we should maybe look at it more. Um, but I am glad to see that there is some what's the word I want to use, some consistency now in the JavaScript or in the, in the web developer world, because I certainly remember being a new web developer um, back then. I hadn't worked in web development for a number of years and being completely confused by, by sort of the array of different choices that I had in front of me. So as you're leading through these, these various teams, the Angular teams, the ones you have now, and even in your, your previous role, um, and what did you do right bef- in between the Angular stint again? Uh, so between Angular this time and last time, I had moved into our Google Cloud organization, and I was leading a few uh, different teams. Uh, I'm, I'm a unique manager in this way in which I did not have a single domain. So I was managing the uh, developer relations team or technical team for our Google Cloud startups world. So that would be uh, developer advocates or technical uh, engineers who would go out and work with various startups around the world to onboard them faster to GCP offerings. I had a second team that was higher education, so I had a DevRel team that was responsible to go work with students and professors at you know large universities around the world, uh, influencing curriculum, for example. Uh, how do we teach children these days around machine learning and AI and the tools that they're going to need when they graduate to be successful as software engineers? And then I had a third team, which was uh, the G Suite Developer Platform Developer Relations Team, which was primarily an enterprise-focused developer relations team, really out there working with G Suite customers who are trying to automate workflows on top of the platform. So writing code in various languages like AppScript um, and using some of the low-code, no-code tool sets that G Suite has provided. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bit. And what I was trying to think about here was, uh, thinking about the Twitterverse comments you made earlier, you know, we put something out on Twitter and it seems like everyone's like, oh, wow, somebody said it on Twitter. It must be true, right? <laughs> I hear a lot about hiring practices quite a bit. And let me just tell you a couple thoughts I've heard recently. And I'm curious what you think about how hiring a technical team and what that team should be composed of would be. Some of, some of the thoughts I've heard are things like you should always get a mix of um, lesser experienced and more experienced people, regardless of age or culture, et cetera, just get that variety of experience. Others I've heard us say only hire, uh, the expression is uh, an A player is worth three C players. Uh, you know, if you want to grade people in that sense, or only hire senior or above level people, because that's where you're going to go. Another comment I've heard is, and I don't necessarily agree with or disagree with any of these, just putting some stuff out there. Another one I've heard is that when you're hiring, you should only hire people who have experience in what you're hiring for. Um, and obviously, there's counterarguments to all those. But I'm kind of curious, when you put a team together, what kind of a mix do you feel works best? Yeah, great question. So uh, I actually did a presentation internally about this subject just recently. So sort of fresh in my mind in that I actually view being an engineering manager or team lead. And I've put a lot of big teams together from scratch. Um, I view it as the same way I would view software architecture, but with a people flavor on top. So notice that in none of those descriptions did you actually talk about the person themselves outside of their skill set or or engineering uh, years of experience levels, right? To me, there's a huge combination that has to happen between having the right person. And when I say right person, I'm not talking at all about their technical chops, right? I'm talking about a person who fits with the culture of your team, who has the right motivations, and who wants to work collaboratively with others. So I look for those first three things before I look at anything technical. In fact, I did an interview this morning, and I didn't ask a single technical question, because all I want to know from the very first meeting is, does this person fit with the culture of the team in which I'm building or managing? The second thing I'll then look at is, what is the job I'm actually hiring for? What is the... What is the urgency of that role compared to 
the timeline I have to put somebody who can be successful in that role. And so let me give you an example. If I have a role and I need it to be filled urgently, right? Like I just don't have time to waste anymore for whatever reason, that person needs to get in, perform, and go to town. Then I'll do a combination of prioritize, is it a cultural fit? And second, do they have the level of experience and the technical domain knowledge for that specific problem to jump in and have success early? If if they don't have both of those combinations, I don't care how much technical excellence they have, I'll never hire them. If the job I'm hiring for has room, if there's no urgency, if it's room for growth, if I have a good tech lead who can help support somebody with zero experience, but a strong cultural fit, I'm absolutely going to hire that person. So I don't know that there's a straight up answer. Like, like I said, I view building teams as same as software architecture, right? Some things are more urgent and some things are less urgent and cultural fit is always going to trump absolutely every other aspect of hiring. But can I put a little pressure on that? Um, sometimes the culture needs a little shaken up. Absolutely. Uh, right. And so is your definition of fit, not as in perfectly like everybody else on the team and culture or, or is there, do you sometimes have a, a goal for uh, shifting the culture of a team? And Absolutely. So for example, when I build a team from scratch, it's much easier, frankly, to build a team from scratch because, I know what I'm trying to set up. I know how to set up the right strains first. I know where culturally I want to take that team. As opposed to coming in and taking over a team where you have to take a step back, you have to feel the culture, digest the culture, become a part of the culture, and then figure out what isn't working for that team because all teams have challenges. I don't care how well run you are. Every team does. And the only way you can fix tough challenges is to change your culture and absolutely hiring for culture change is absolutely something that I look at. I'm actively looking at that now uh, for various teams that I, I manage. Um, and, and purposely looking at, at EQ before anything else for the, for the types of things that I need to have uh, somebody strong in culturally. So absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And I, that's why I don't think there's an easy answer to this question because it's really time, place, and need. And, but I will maintain that culture is above all else. And that doesn't mean maintaining culture it means the culture I want to have at the end of the day. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Are you a JavaScript developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX Dev Tools from Narwhal, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between Angular and React frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workflow. Build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev to get Narwhal's free, open source set of extensible dev tools. And as we come back here, Jules, you mentioned EQ. Uh, would you mind just elaborating on that for folks? Oh, yeah. So EQ, by that I mean, you know, having an emotional uh, understanding of emotions and people this very soft skilly, right? So um, it's really important for software engineers as well as engineering managers or DevRel to have this sort of emotional uh, intelligence, if you will, to be able to understand people because when you're working on tough challenges and when you have to bring people in a room to collaborate, right, that EQ or being able to sense where someone else is coming from or, or frankly, knowing when to stop or knowing when to push or knowing when, you know, hey, we're not going to make any headway here. Maybe we need to walk away for a day or two is, is critically important. And if you have SWEs who don't have that emotional EQ or don't have those kind of insights both about themselves or how they relate to others, there's a lot more roadblocks you have to get over because there's a lot more ego in the way or not open to other people's points of views or collaboration at all, like this is mine and I'm going to do it my way kind of thinking. Those kinds of traits really disrupt the team, especially a team that has so many things on their plate with so many end users at stake. I, lo I love that you're bringing that up. There's an article that I just put into the show notes uh, about this topic that it's not technical related, but it's, it's about EQ or EI, emotional intelligence. Um, and the things that it talks about are having self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. And what I really love there, the ones that call out, are the self-awareness and self-regulation. Because a lot of times people ask me, hey, you know, for career advice, John, what should I do in this case? There are, and we're always thinking, myself included, about what I should be doing. And I think sometimes we should stop and say, maybe there's something I'm doing that I should be stopping from doing. <laughs> 
Like maybe stop talking or maybe listen more and try to understand where Jules or Ward on this call, for example, are coming from. Um, it doesn't mean you do it all the time, obviously, but it's, I think there's a balance of all these things is a good thing to have. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and, uh, and that's why I interview for culture first, because I'm looking for the signals that people either have that or can get that. So don't get me wrong. If I'm interviewing somebody who, you know, is, is newly graduated from college and, you know, fairly young and inexperienced, I'm not looking for them to have all those skills. I'm looking for the openness to develop those skills. Right. Well, let me push back on this a little bit. Uh, Jules, maybe you've run across someone like this who says, Jules, come on, I am the best developer and write the most code and the highest quality code you've ever seen. Why do I need any of this other stuff? Oh, I've actually had this conversation. Um, and, you know, I'll bring it I all. I think we to- had that, Jules. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Was this with Ward? <laughs> <laughs> that might be true, Ward. Might oh, be true. Oh. Oh my! There, there's a quick edit right there. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless a bless a medic. <laughs> so, um, I actually have had this conversation before. There are some people who just, you know, don't feel that those skills are important. If you're a software engineer, I'll, I'll actually be honest. I have had this conversation with my own son, who is about to graduate with a degree in computer science, about the necessary need to develop those skills. He's very introverted. It's not something that he cares about. And what I told him was, listen. You know, when you get to work, it's not about sitting in front of your computer and seeing the ones and zeros blip across the screen. It's about showing up to work, meeting your friends who become your friends because you sit with them every day, all day, and work on hard challenges, and then understanding that same compassion that you might have for your family or, you know, that you have for your sister because your dog just died, and bringing that into the workplace in every scenario so that when you're talking about tough technical challenges or bad things happen, because they always do, right? We, we come from that sense of empathy and compassion for our peers, and we can move forward from there. Because if you don't, then no one wants to work with you, and no one wants to listen to you, and no one's going to get on your train if you have a brilliant idea, because they're like, oh, this person's just all in it for themselves and has no care for me. And so really, I guess, like, you know, the message I gave my son, for example, when this came up was develop compassion for yourself in this team that you might be working on, but more importantly, develop compassion for your peers, because that compassion is when, what's going to let them know you care. You know, I appreciate hearing that. Uh, I, I do empathize with the other side sometimes of this, because I do agree with you, but I empathize with the other side of, I've worked with people who are just really, really good at the technical, and they don't necessarily want to work with a bunch of other people who are on team. They want to be given the hard problems, go code, and, you know, submit their work and, and move along, get another challenge. And I do think there's a place for people like that, but... Let me, let me concur with you that there is a place for that. And I'm not... Yeah. There are people like that at Google, and I do believe that there is a measure of success for those people. I think it has to be on the right team or in the right space for that to work. Um, because if you have a team that is working on problems and they need to collaborate and you have that one outlier, unless you can carve a portion off and just sort of like put them in a box, you know, and be the, the typical closet engineer, um, then they just become, they become outside of where the rest of the team is going. But I do agree with you. There are places. And for example, and I'll, I'll use myself, I stayed home for 10 years with my kid as a sole engineer who didn't want to collaborate, didn't want to be part of the team. And what the team that I was working on did was just handed me small features to go build in my closet by myself. And that worked. And it was a great for me at the time. Um, but, you know, I couldn't be where I am today without having built those soft skills over the years after. You know, I'm so glad you, you shared that with us because I think that's important to realize all the sides of this. There's definitely been times in my career where I've been the same way. And honestly, it's been the same kind of thing where I've had my family obligations have really trumped any extra time or energy that I had and thought, you know what, I just I just can't right now do all the things I need to do to be a true member of this team. I need to take work offline and then come back. Uh, and there's moments in my career where that's had to happen for me. Um, but I definitely tend towards the other side of I'd rather work with people and understand what they want and Ultimately, what, real, what I'd like to drive towards is the, the user experience, the customer experience, the guest experience, however you want to say it. So that kind of gets to another thing. That uh, What do you think about, you know, more and more people are working remotely, but that puts pressure on team and there's a greater reliance on people's ability to participate. What's, what's kind of your feeling about remote work? 
Oh, word. Why do you ask me the hard questions? Well, because you can, you're actually capable of answering these questions directly. You know something about working remotely. <laughs> I, I do know a thing or two about working remotely. So let me give you the caveat to my answer that this answer has absolutely nothing of an opinion where Google is based. But I will give you my personal answer. I personally think that the world has to begin to embrace remote work. Just so you know, this role with Angular as the engineering manager will be the first time I have ever had a desk in nine years at Google. I have worked remotely my entire career. That is all 20, I'm going to age myself if I tell you just how many years I've been in this business. Um, uh, I've, I've always worked remotely. I stayed home with my children for 10 years doing remote contract work for Microsoft. Um, I've, I had a fully remote job prior to this role at Google where I was living full-time in Maui. Um, I believe in it. I believe it takes a skill set to be successful with it. And I believe it takes a culture of team to be successful with it. I think there's a time and a place where it doesn't work. And, uh, and I believe that sometimes face-to-face -face is completely uh, required. Do you have some examples of when you feel like remote work doesn't work well? Um, yeah, I think like if, uh, let me give you this example. Like if you're building a product and it's, you know, you're dealing with some tough issues or whatever, I think the team has to come together in the beginning to sort of get everybody in the same place kind of working together. And then as things start to gel and as you've got good engineering process and, and good future roadmap-y, everyone knows where they're going, why they're there, kind of collaboration going on, then I think it's easier to input remote work. Um, but I do think that there is, always going to need to be that time and place where people come together. I don't believe that Google believes in remote work the same way I do. I can tell you that I have tried to influence both Google and Microsoft over a number of years to embrace remote work because I think it is the future of humanity, and I don't think our future is nine to five in offices. You know, that, that sits well with my experience, uh, and I think also what sits well with our experience because I remember, like, you would fly in regularly. It wasn't that you were not present physically from uh, time to time. It's just that it, you didn't have to be there five days a week, every week. And so there's there's a way to, to, to make, the, make it work, right? Yeah, and I think it's different. Like, for example, I just told you I was living full-time in Maui. We're not even talking about, like, living full-time in Mountain View. I was living full-time in Maui and gave up that role to come here and, you know, a lot of people question my decision on a personal level. I mean, nobody's questioning my decision on an engineering management technical opportunity level. But on a personal level, people are like, are you crazy? And, and I might be. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I had the dream. But the reason that I took this was I felt like I could have more impact here at Google evangelizing why not being in the office five days a week is okay. And, you know, I can't do it right now. I am in the office every week. I did get an apartment here in Sunnyvale. But I do believe that I have the opportunity to have huge amounts of influence and to show, in particular, people who want to build young families that there is options out there. And so I came here in part to lead web frameworks, in part to be an influence that I believe the world is changing and we shouldn't change with it, and in part because the opportunity was too big for me to stay holed up in my house in Maui and not take it. Um, but I do want to affect change. I am trying to proactively figure out ways that myself and the team can, you know, be where we want to be when we need to be there. Uh, I have a lot of work to do there, but hopefully I'll get there. I have a lot of experience working on a remote team, so a lot of this resonates with me. And honestly, 10 years ago when I was at Microsoft, I had an opportunity to stay at Microsoft or leave when I was literally moving from Seattle to Florida. Uh, and I could have stayed on, and the promise of, yeah, you can work remote was there, but I just didn't see and feel that in the culture at the time. And honestly, it was a good decision for me to leave at that moment for, for that reason and others. Uh, but now working remotely, I live in Orlando and this is where I work and my home base is over 3000 miles away. And other than a few moments and glimpses through the year, I feel very connected to my teams. And I think a lot of that is the combination of both the culture and the technology. They've both changed quite a bit in tech. Uh, over the last decade to allow this kind of thing. But also remember that you're in DevRel, and like I was just in DevRel, which is why I could work and live in Maui full time. And DevRel is a, like I, I just gave a present a presentation at Maui Tech Ohana uh, on remote work. I gave an hour long presentation on how to do remote work because obviously a lot of people who live on the islands are looking for remote work. And, you know, one of the things that I told them was that DevRel 
in particular, if you're an engineer, is a great way to get flexibility because DevRel's role is to be on the road. So all that matters is that you're next to an airport, right? If, if, you're, if your role is flying, yes. Um, yeah, we've got people who don't do that as well. I totally agree. DevRel makes it easier. Uh, what makes me cringe sometimes, and even at my own company at Microsoft, I'll hear this once in a while of, well, you know, if this is a role we want, this role really needs to be in Redmond in Washington. And my first question is always, not because I disagree sometimes, but why? Let's at least articulate why the role has to be where everybody else is. And if the answer is simply just because it's easier to collaborate, well, why? Why can't people collaborate other ways through Teams, Zoom, et cetera? Um, but the one answer that never serves me well is, well, you missed the water cooler talk. <laughs> you know, if I don't think that should be the reason you can't work remote, but... Um, yeah, I do miss that, honestly. I don't get that with my team. But there's uh, there are roles I feel like might be better served locally. Like when I was a full-time manager, which I'm not doing right now in DevRel, I felt like if my team was all in one place, it would be better for me to be with them because then they see me all the time. But So I do, I do think there's times to be there. I just don't think in this world it's a great thing. And another thing to think about is, Right now, we're very North America-centric. And what about South America? What about Africa, Asia, Middle East, Europe? You know, we're really missing out on opportunities of some amazing people in a lot of other parts of the world that may not have uh, the opportunity to move to America to take a job. And there's some brilliant people out there. Yeah, and let me make the bold statement that I, you know, I, I guess I could get fired for, which is I think Google is in particular, is missing out on a lot of good talent because of, you know, the requirement to be in this particular location that is vastly expensive and, you know, and overcrowded. And so, you know, my hope is that I can influence Google somewhat in this way because I think it's a challenge going forward and I don't think the world is going to go backwards to where we used to be, where everybody went to an office nine to five. I think that is definitively gone and the world is moving forward and we need to move forward with it. In the same vein that we were just talking about, about missing out, I, the question I'm dying to ask is, um, what do you think about older workers? Because I don't see them a lot in the teams. I didn't see them a lot at Google teams. So uh, what do you think about older um, uh, workers, uh, developers on your teams? Uh, I'm all for it. I mean, I am one as well, right? I just... Uh, I just... Manager. <laughs> do you think being a manager makes the difference? Well, I think that what we see out there is that uh, they sort of bubble these folks up, and then uh, and older people, you know, the older people are supposed to get out of development and end up in uh, technical teams. At least that's what it looks like. So, so tell us what you think. I don't see that at Google at all. I just turned fifty a couple weeks ago, and I don't feel the pressure at Google at all. I see lots of older software engineers running around the halls here. I I don't see that here in my my particular company. I have heard, you know, I've read the news and I've heard people talk about how they feel that they are, you know, subject to ageism. Um, even internally here at Google, we have a number of, you know, email lists where people talk about like, you know, is material design really good for old eyes kind of deal. But um, I don't think there's anything wrong with older workers. I would absolutely hire an older worker. I consider myself an older software engineer. And, and uh, I think that, you know, our minds stay as fresh as we allow our minds to stay as we age. And that's really the critical thing. Are you still learning? Are you still growing? Are you still, you know, open to uh, tomorrow? Are you looking for a job, Ward? No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, you know, because I'm the only one who would hire me. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I agree. With but that. I think it's I think it's important we think about these things. And there's a I've, lot of anxiety, though. I, you know, I yeah. hear that from developers in their 40s who think that it's over for them. And um, I think that was know. me and you talking last week. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to hear that perspective, Jules, because it, it's a concern that's out there. So. Uh, it's been a great conversation, Jules. Super uh, fun to talk to you guys again. It's been a while. It has, and I hope to see you at one of the events coming up soon. It's been a long time seeing each other in person. Jules, thanks so much for coming on. And at the end of our show, we'd like to put a final thought out to our listeners, something that you feel uh, you could help them out with. And since we're talking about careers, or anything you've got, Mr. Ward Bell, that you'd like to share? 
Oh, I have something that's slightly off topic. We were talking earlier about, you know, uh, the solidification of the framework space in the web. But the, th- the place that seems wide open to me is um, WebAssembly. And I have, I'm going to post a, a, an interesting article on uh, uh, WebAssembly and Blazor by our good friend Rick Straw into our show notes. WebAssembly. You mean WASM? That's yeah, the thing. <laughs> I love all the wonderful acronyms that we have in our industry. Well, put and Blazer, doesn't that sound, that sounds like something you would, I would never be seen in. Well, Blazer is, every time I hear that word, and I work for Microsoft, so there's the caveat, all I can think of is the movie Dodgeball, and all the names of the Dodgeball players that were on the rival team were like Laser, Blazer, Phaser, and Taser or something, and I don't know. So it makes me laugh every time I hear that word. Jules, what's what's your final thought for our listeners? Uh, My final thought for the listeners here would be I am hopeful that the Angular community will continue to participate. One of the challenges that we seem to have right now as I'm trying to understand uh, the use cases of our customers is I find a lot of the enterprise developers who are using Angular are not as active in the community. I don't know if that's an enterprise thing or what, but I encourage anyone who's listening who's part of that community, reach out and get involved. You can find me on Twitter or any of our DevRel team, and we would love to hear from you. Also, we are RC on Ivy, so please go try it if you're an Angular user. We've had some pretty good feedback from our test uh, enterprise customers, and we'd love to hear from you too. And I'll put a link in there to both your Twitter handle and to Angular Ivy for people to take a look at that. And my final thought is about remote work. It's something that's near and dear to me, and I'm going to share a couple tips that have made my remote work life easy for any of you out there who are considering this. First, the responsibility of being a productive remote worker is not only on your team, but on you. Uh, So make yourself available, make yourself present. uh, And some good examples of that are, if there is a a meeting, insist on video, insist on people turning on the video, and then also make yourself be known in the meeting. Don't, um, a friend of mine calls it, don't be a lurker. (laughs) You know, make sure they know that you're there. If you're like, And I've said this myself. Well, sometimes it's hard to actually get your voice heard on these video meetings because you're over the phone or you're over a video call. Well, that goes both ways. If you try to get in there, it may take time, but it's important to make sure that you are visible and impactful in these kinds of remote meetings. Uh, My second tip on this is block your calendar appropriately, especially if you're in a different time zone. I actually block my calendar from 5 o'clock to about 9 o'clock p.m., because I am three hours ahead of where my home office is. And if I don't do that, I found that people would constantly book me for meetings during family dinner time. And I'm not sorry, but no job's taking me away from my kids. I've got four of them and I like seeing them and hopefully they like to see me. So by just blocking that in my calendar every single day with a recurring appointment, I rarely ever get scheduled for a meeting because people are pretty good about checking your calendar for those things. But you don't believe in remote parenting, I take it. <laughs> remote parenting. <laughs> no, but would you like to be my dad? I don't think that's going to work for me, Ward. Sorry. So trust me, you you do get to do remote parenting. Uh, I, I not only turned 50 last month, but I also entered Empty Nest. And I will tell you that oh. remote parenting is real. And it's just as heart-wrenching as in-person parenting. Very real. Uh, I feel for you. I've got two kids in college, and it's, I'm not looking forward, and the other two go. It's all so good. Every, They're great. Everybody out there, thank you for listening to us. Uh, I hope we can get Jules back on down the road. Maybe we can, once Ivy is released and Angular's out there, I'd love to talk about what's coming next in Angular. Uh, would you be willing to come back on, Jules? Absolutely. Just give me a little bit more time to figure that out. <laughs> awesome. And for all you out there, thanks for listening to another week of Real Talk JavaScript. You'll hear from us every Tuesday morning. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS. 